0: Thank you, Alma. Good morning, everybody. I had uh, the great privilege to be at the men's retreat for Friday night and part of yesterday. Had a wonderful time up there in fellowship, exploring that theme of brotherhood. Uh, really rich time there. Well, my name is Dan. I'm the college and young adults pastor here at PBC. And uh, as somebody who works with young adults, it may surprise you to know that I am not a gamer. Uh, Video games have just never really been my thing. Growing up, we didn't really have a whole lot in our house in terms of video games, Uh, but my, my neighbor did thankfully have an N64 with Mario Kart and Super Smash Brothers, so I would love to go over to their place and play that. But by middle school or high school or so, my friends had graduated from Mario Kart to Halo. So one time, they invited me to this party where they connected four Xboxes to four TVs and we had 16 of us playing this game together. And I was pretty excited to get invited to this. I had played a couple times, um, but it wasn't very good, but I I was confident that this was gonna be really fun. It was not really fun. (laughs) Uh, Not for me, because this is how it would go. We would start the game, the shooting would pick up, the shouting would get louder, and I would be dead. And, and that just basically happened over and over and over again. And the frustrating thing was, was not so much that I kept dying. The frustrating thing is I had no idea why. So I'm looking at this screen, trying to understand the map, trying to figure out how do I pick up this weapon? Is that person trying to kill me? Are they on my team? Who am I supposed to shoot? I just had no idea what was going on. You know, it, it's one thing to be, uh, to have things be not going your way, it's another thing to, to not know what to do about it, right? But, but sometimes this is how we experience life. We, we know kind of what we want in life, and yet we don't know how to get it. We know we want to be people who experience more joy and peace, and yet we find we keep getting drawn back to anxiety and depression. We we find that we want to have deep and rich community, to have relationships with each other, and yet we find ourselves continuing to feel lonely and isolated. And for many of us, we we find that we we want to have a close relationship with God. We, We want to be growing in faith, and yet we find ourselves feeling far from God. We find ourselves struggling with sin. We find ourselves not progressing in faith in the way that we would like to. It can be frustrating in those times to not just be not getting what we want, but to not really know why it's happening or to not know how to move forward. But the good news is that God has not left us in the dark. When, when it comes to the game of life, he, he has not left us without the rule book, right? he, He's shown us how life is supposed to be lived. He doesn't want us to have to guess how we can experience joy and peace. He doesn't want us to guess what we have to do in order to have close relationships with one another. And he doesn't want us to to guess what we have to do in order to grow in our relationship with him. He's told us. It's in this book. It's in his word. And this morning, as we continue our study of Exodus, we're going to look at one of the passages of Scripture that are most important for us understanding what it looks like to live life well what it looks like to live life the way that God has designed it, what it looks like to love God, what it looks like to love one another. The the people of Israel called this the Decalogue. We usually refer to it as the 10 Commandments. It's found in Exodus 20 verses one through 21, which is gonna be our text for this morning. So Lord, as we open your word together, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus, that you have given us your spirit so that we could be connected with you and we could understand your word and be in relationship with you. And so I pray, Lord, that in this morning, as we open your word, that you would speak. Even as the people of Israel were gathered at Mount Sinai, uh, anticipating you speaking to them and ready to listen, we pray that we would be ready to listen this morning to receive from you, to hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder when you hear that we're gonna be talking about the 10 commandments this morning, I wonder what that makes you think. I wonder what that makes you feel. I'm sure everybody is familiar in some degree to the 10 commandments, but what is your response to the idea of the 10 commandments at kind of an emotional level? Yeah, I imagine that for some of us, it's actually a response of fear. Like God's given this list of thou shalt nots, and if we break any of them, God's just looking for an opportunity to punish us. Some of us probably feel that way. Others of us probably feel like this is just kind of an outdated relic of an ancient religion. Like it's not really that helpful, maybe interesting, but not really that practical for us. Some of us might feel like this is just kind of, it makes us feel claustrophobic almost. Like this is God giving us all these lists of things to to do and not do. And and we just feel like God's trying to compress us into some narrow moral space. There's lots of different ways that that we might respond to the idea of the 10 commandments. But for the people of Israel, both today, the Jewish people that would seek to follow the law, as well as 3,000 years ago when they were first given the law, This is not the way that they thought about the law. Look, for example, at what the psalmist says in Psalm 1, the first two verses of that Psalm. Blessed or or, happy, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night saying, you wanna be happy? You wanna be blessed? Think about God's law day and night. Think about it all the time. Meditate on it. Let's, let it sink into your heart and into your bones. Even Moses, as he was talking with the people, just before they entered the promised land, he, he gives the law again. And as he's giving the law, he, he wants to kind of help them understand, well, what is this about? And so he says this in Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 to 15. For this commandment that I command to you today is not hard for you, neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us so that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, today I have set before you life and good, death and evil. He's saying these words, the words of the law, these are are words of life. The people of Israel understood the law to be God's greatest gift to them. You see, in, in that world of paganism, that was, that was common in that time and dominated the culture, people, people didn't know what their gods expected. And so you just kind of tried anything, right? It's like, well, let's offer some sacrifices. Let's burn some incense. Maybe, maybe if we sacrifice our children, maybe if we cut ourselves and dance around, like just, just anything to get the gods to, to pay attention to us and to gain their favor. And you just kind of try things, not really knowing what works. And Moses says, aren't you glad that we don't have to send someone far off to figure out what we're supposed to do, but that God has actually come to us and he's, he's told us in the law what he expects. You see, there's a lot of people in our culture, and I think there's a lot of people in the church today that approach life kind of the same way that was common in the time when the law was given. Like we, we just kind of try some things to see what might work. And so we we take a little mindfulness, and and we see if that might help bring us some peace. And and then we take a little consumerism. If I could just buy a few more things, then maybe that would bring me some some happiness. Uh, Maybe, you know, a beer when I get home from work, a couple of drinks to help me unwind. Like, maybe that's kind of what I need. Maybe, you know, an an evening uh, time with the Lord or a morning time with the Lord, a prayer before a meal, and we just kind of Grab these things, just kind of hoping maybe if I take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that's going to give me what I want. God says, I don't want you to live like that. I don't want you to have to live like that. I want to tell you. I want to tell you how it's meant to be done. I want to tell you what it's going to take to be in right relationship with each other. I want to tell you what it's going to take to be in right relationship with me. God doesn't want us to guess. He's given, up, given it to us in his word. So then we come to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, these aren't, it's not an arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. It's not a list of things that we need to do in order to be right with God, in order to earn our way into his favor or into his kingdom. It's not some, some outdated list that, that isn't practical or helpful or relevant to us today. Now, what we're going to see as we look at these words is that these are words of life. This is God's roadmap to how life is meant to be lived. But before we look at these actual commands, it's, it's helpful to think a little bit about the idea of covenant. Because the 10 commandments and the law, the whole Mosaic law that God gives to his people is a covenant. We don't talk a lot about covenants today. Sometimes we use that language. We maybe think more about like contracts than covenants. But in the ancient world, uh, covenants were common. And and there's a couple different kind of covenants that are especially helpful to understand if we're trying to understand what God is doing in the law. The first, I'm not going to talk a lot about, but it was a kind of political covenant. It was called a a suzerain vassal covenant, and it was a covenant that when a a powerful nation would take over uh, a less powerful nation, they would give them a covenant that basically said, we will protect you in these ways if you pay taxes to us, pay tributes to us, provide this labor. If you do these things, this political arrangement that these nations would have. And and as we look at the law of Moses, we see an exact parallel with these ancient kind of treaties, political treaties. So that's helpful to understand, but it it doesn't really get us all the way there to, to understanding what God is trying to do. Another covenant that helps us though, is the marriage covenant. There are all kinds of parallels between the giving of the law of Moses and what an ancient Israelite wedding would have looked like. So for example, uh, before the wedding, the bride would consecrate herself with a ritual bath. And then she would be carried into the wedding ceremony as trumpets sounded. Remember what we saw last week in Exodus 19 as the people were preparing to hear from God? God said, I want you to consecrate the people. And there were all these trumpets blaring. Then at a wedding, the bride and groom would make their way to the front of the ceremony and they would gather together underneath this canopy that represented the presence of God. Exodus 19, the people of Israel are gathered at the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. And there's this cloud over the mountain to represent God's presence. And then, and then from that cloud, God speaks to his people and he says, I want you to be my treasured possession. That's language that a groom would use of his bride on their wedding. And then as the bride and groom were gathered at the front, the, the groom would present the bride with a document that contained 10 or so things that he wanted to be true of their relationship. The, these core fundamental principles where he said, this, this is what I want to be true of our relationship. These are my desires, these are my hopes for our marriage. And she could either accept or reject this covenant. This is what we have in Exodus chapter 20. We have God proposing to his people, right? Initiating this marriage ceremony, saying, here are my desires for our relationship. Here's what I want to be true of us. It's God inviting us, his people, into a marriage with him, a relationship where he knows us, where he loves us, where he he, he draws us in. It's not just a list of do's and don'ts. It's not even just this legal contract that would bind us to God and him to us. This is an invitation into a marriage, an invitation into a relationship with God. These are words of life. So let's take a look at these words, see what God has to say. Let's start in Exodus 20 verses one through two. It says, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Here, before God gives any of the commandments, before he gives any of these words that he wants to share, we have God reminding the people that he has already shown them grace. Before God ever lays down any expectations, before God asks for disobedience, like he's going to do here in the 10 commandments, he says, I just want you to remember that I have already brought you out of slavery. I have already brought you out of Egypt. I have already saved you. I have already redeemed you, right? God God wants them to know, to be clear, that, that before he's asking them to to take these steps of obedience, he's saying, I have already shown you grace. And this is what God does, right? Before God asks anything of us, he pours out his grace on us. Before Jesus would ask you to pick up, to, to lay down your life, pick up your cross and follow him, he went to the cross for us. He died for us. Before he would ask you to try to reconcile that relationship in your life that's broken, He died so that we could be reconciled to God. Before Jesus would ask you to love your enemy, he died for you while you were yet his enemy. This is how God works. In our relationship with God, God always moves first. He always takes the first step to us. He always shows us grace before he asks for obedience. But then of course, God is going to ask, For obedience. God is going to say, here's what I'm expecting from you. Here here are the things that I'm expecting from you in this relationship with you. And so we get to the Ten Commandments. Mentioned earlier, the the people of Israel called this the Decalogue. There's actually nowhere in the text where where these are called commandments. Instead, they're called words. We have ten words, Decalogue. And these ten words are basically divided into two sections. The first four we're gonna see are vertical. They're about our relationship with God. The second six are horizontal about our relationship with each other. And and even as we hear that, we probably hear echoes of Jesus' response when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? The, The Hebrew rabbis, Jewish rabbis identified 613 different laws given in the law of Moses. And one day somebody comes to Jesus and and asks him, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus boils it down to two. Of all the 613, he says there's two that are most important. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. In the 10 commandments, we have four commands about loving God and we have six commands about loving each other. So the whole law can be summarized by the two laws which are then given more clarity, more detail in the 10 laws. And then God's going to flesh that out in a whole bunch more laws to try to help his people understand what the life well-lived looks like. What does it look like to follow God the way that he has designed life to work? So let's look at the first of these 10 words, starting in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me the first word, the first command that God's going to give. Second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The, these first two words are all about worship. In the first one, God says, you know, I am the one true God and I want all of your worship. In the second one, he's going to say, and don't, don't make any images, don't make any idols, don't make any you know, visual representation of me or of other gods. Just keep me first, worship me alone. God's saying, I, I want all of you. I-, I want all of you. I want all of your attention. I want all of your affection. I want all of your worship. I want all of your love. I don't want to be second to anything. I want to be first, the primary thing, the center point of your life. I don't just want to be something that you add on, right? In this kind of pick and choose kind of spirituality. I want to be the center. I want to be it, the thing in the middle of it all that holds everything together, that holds your life together. I want all of your worship. I want all of your love. But how do we know if we're keeping this commandment? How do we know if we're loving God with everything we have. How do we know if we're loving something else more than God? Well, uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller helps us understand what, what a counterfeit God is, what these other things that we're tempted to love more than God are. So he says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Elsewhere, he defines an idol as, as a good thing that we turn into an ultimate thing. So think about your life. What are those things in your life that, that if you were to lose them would make life feel like it's hardly worth living? Right? And, and we all have these things, right? We all have things that, that want to creep into this space. What are those good things in your life that you have taken and you have made ultimate things. That you have let sneak in and, and take that primary place in your life. And, and these things are, are things that probably come to mind for all of us as we ask this question, right? It, it might be our jobs or our careers. That's an easy place to kind of sink our identity as we put so much time and energy into this. It's easy for that to, to creep into a, a place of, of primacy in our lives. Or maybe it's school and our studies and, and getting good grades. Right? Maybe it's the kind of three classic idols of the heart, money, sex, and power. These things that, that just grab humans a, a, and, and pull us in after them. Maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your reputation. It could be anything that, that if we were to lose that, we would feel like life is hardly worth living. That, that's what we love most. God is saying, I, I want that to be me and me alone. I I want to be at the center. I want to to hold your life together. I want all of your worship. God starts the commands that way. He starts the words this way, but why why would God say this? Why would God ask this of us? Well, uh, um, in part, it's because God deserves all of our worship. Right? He deserves all of our praise. He is the best thing that there is. And, and, and he knows that, that he deserves that place of primacy in our lives. But also he knows that, that when we don't put him at the center, that life doesn't work the way it's supposed to. Because nothing else that we might love will ever love us back like God does. Right? And that's what we're looking for, Right? We're not just looking for something to love. We're looking for something or someone to love us back. And the reality is that no one or no thing will love us back like God does. And this is what he goes on to talk about. In verses five through six, he's still talking about idolatry. He says this, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, these words can sound a bit harsh at first. Right? God talking about being a jealous God, talking about visiting uh, people three and four generations down for those who hate him. And especially in our Western individualistic culture, that, much, that might just sound wrong, right? But, but, but God's saying, that this, is, this is how life works. Right? The, the, the nature of sin and its consequences is that these things sometimes get passed down generation to generation. You think about somebody who grew up in a home with parents who were alcoholics or addicts or abusive. Oftentimes, the default is for those children to follow in the same path, even if they don't want to. Part of the nature of sin is that these things are passed down from generation to generation. And God just says, I, I want you to know that, that this is the way life works. But, it, but I, he says, I'm not, I'm not looking to, to make that happen. What God says is, yes, there's gonna be consequences of sin that are passed down from generation to generation. But he says, I am looking to show my love, my, my steadfast love, my covenant faithfulness to thousands, he says. But what's clear there in the Hebrew that we don't really pick up in the English is that he's not talking about thousands of people. He's talking about thousands of generations. So God says, your sin and its consequences might stick with you for three or four generations, but I am looking to show my love and my faithfulness to a thousand generations, to thousands of generations. He's not trying to be literal so much here. He's trying to draw a contrast with the relatively short amount of time that God will be angry with sin and the huge, vast amount of time that God wants to pour out his love and grace and faithfulness to us says, this is who I am. I am looking to love you. Do you ever ever feel like God is out to get you? Sometimes we can feel this way, like like God's just just looking, just waiting for us to mess up, or, or like life is just not going the way that we thought it would. God must be out there just looking to get me. God says, I'm not out there looking to get you. I'm not out there looking for reasons to punish you. I am out there looking to love you. I I want to love you. I want to draw you in. I want to show you my grace. I want to show you my faithfulness. I want to know you. I want to be in relationship with you. God says, this is who I am and this is what I want. This is what I want to be true of our relationship. I'm gonna pursue you. I'm gonna love you. I'm gonna show you grace. That's our God. That's who he is. He's not out to get us. He's out to love us, to be in this intimate marriage relationship with him. Well, we're two commandments in to 10. So I'm guessing two or three hours we should be out of here this morning. So just hold tight. Now, the, 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 there's, there's a reason that I wanted to start off by really thinking about what are the 10 commandments? Like, what, what is God trying to do? What, what, what are these all about? Because it's so easy to, to mishear all of this. It's so easy to misunderstand all this, to just, to just default to works-based righteousness or this list of do's and don'ts. And God's like, that's, that's not what this is about. This is about loving me more than you love anything else because that's the way that life works best. That is what you have been created for. But then he goes on and he he does give more. And so I want to look at those briefly. What are the other eight words, the other eight commandments that God gives? We're still thinking about these uh, vertical commands for the next two, these commands about how to be in right relationship with God. First in verse seven, we get the third word. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. God's saying, don't, don't speak poorly behind me. Don't speak poorly about me behind my back. Show, show me the respect that I deserve. He goes on with the fourth command, starting in verse eight. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it Holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. There's a lot that could be said here. This is the longest of the commandments that we get in this list of ten. It's also the only one that's not explicitly reaffirmed in the New Testament, which has led to a lot of debate about whether the Sabbath is still binding for us today. And we're not gonna get into that right now, but all that I wanna say is that if the Sabbath is not still binding for us today, it is still incredibly good advice. It's tapping into something about how God has created us as humans. And so if you don't take the Sabbath, if you don't set aside a day for worship and rest, give it a try. I, I promise you it will be difficult and it will be amazing. That kind of wraps up these four vertical commands. What does it look like to be in right relationship with God? These are the four foundational principles that God wants to give us. And now we see a shift a shift to thinking about the horizontal. What does it look like to love my neighbor as myself? So let's look at the fifth commandment in verse 12. It says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The the first thing that God would say about what it looks like to love our neighbor starts with our parents, starts with our families. You know, sometimes it's, it's the most difficult to love those who are close to us. And, and sometimes our parents might hurt us more than anybody else has. And yet, knowing that, God says, honor your father and mother. If you want to start loving people, honor your father and mother. He goes on, commands six through nine, come in, in rapid fire con- uh, succession in verses 13 to 16. Familiar words here. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. These words, these commands that God gives, again, this is just the basics, right? If we continue reading the law, God is gonna expand on this. He's gonna apply these to specific situations so people can understand what does it really look like to not commit murder. Right? It's not just not going out and killing somebody who's innocent. He's gonna give, put a little more teeth on that in the rest of the law. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus is gonna take these things and he's gonna internalize them. Right? He's not just gonna talk about murder, he's gonna talk about hatred. He's not just gonna talk about adultery, he's gonna talk about lust. So there's a lot more that happens after this, but at the very basic level, as a starting point, we should hold on to these things. Right? What does it look like to love our neighbor? Don't, don't kill people. Right? Be, be valuing human life rather than looking to take it. Don't, don't commit adultery. Be a, be a person of of faith, especially faith towards your spouse. Don't steal. Don't just be out taking other people's stuff without working for your own stuff. And don't bear false witness. Don't 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 go around lying. Be a person of integrity the very basics for what it looks like to be in right relationship with each other. And then God gives one more command, the 10th word in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. There's no faster way to become discontent than by just thinking about all the things you don't have. God says, don't, don't live life that way. Don't live life, just focus on all the things you don't have that you, don't, that, that you want. That's, that's not gonna work out well for you. And it's especially gonna be harmful in your relationship to other people. So there it is. God lays out 10 words, 10 foundational principles, 10 desires that he has for us, 10 rules about how life is meant to be lived. And so I want to ask you again, as you hear these 10 words, what is your response? How do you hear these? Maybe still there's some of us that that hear this and we have a response of of fear. Maybe we we have a response of inadequacy. How could I ever do this? All kinds of different responses that we have. And as we look at how the people of Israel respond, it's interesting. We, we looked earlier about the way that they looked at the law kind of a bit further forward as they're looking back and, and they see it as words of life. But what, what, what the people do here is they actually are going to respond with fear. Look at how the people respond in verses 18 to 21. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You got to try to imagine yourself in that scene. You're you're on this mountain, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets, there's this mountain that's smoking. Like, that sounds kind of scary, right? Part of this response from the people is probably just from, like, the sensory overload, right? In the midst of all of that, God speaks, presumably in a very loud voice, and it's like, whoa, whoa, right? There's there's just a fear from all that's going on there. But I also imagine that part of this response of fear is maybe a similar kind of response that some of us have if we respond in fear, right? How am I ever supposed to do this? <laughs> if this is God, what God expects of me, what, what, what is my hope, right? Because as we hear these words, we know if we're honest with ourselves that we can't do these things, right? Just the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't love anything more than you love me. Okay, sometimes maybe I get it, sometimes not. There's no way I'm going to do that all the time. What are we supposed to do? None of us could keep these words, even just these 10 words perfectly. Nobody could, but one man, right? One man, Jesus came and he lived a perfect life. And what we mean when we say, what I mean when I say that he lived a perfect life, it's not just sort of moral in the abstract. No, he kept the law, the 10 words. Jesus did it. He did all of them perfectly. That's what Jesus means when he says that he, he came to fulfill the law. He actually walked it. He, he did these things. The only person ever who will do these things, live the perfect life. And then he died in atoning death. He gave up his life for you and I so that when we aren't able to do these things, we stand in the grace of Jesus. That, that, that we have been washed clean of our sins by his blood. We have been forgiven. We have grace and love in him because he gave up his life for us. So we hear these words And these words are are meant to turn us to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done for me. But then we don't wanna move from there into a dismissive place where we go, well, I guess now we don't need this, because we have Jesus. I guess now we don't need the 10 words because we've been forgiven. No, Jesus Jesus gives us his spirit so that when we fall, that, that spirit is at work in us, bringing about the character of Christ. And Jesus wants to pick us up and say, Let's give it another try. Let's come back to the 10 words. This is the way that we are meant to live. We're going to come to the table in in just a few minutes, take communion together. And communion is a great opportunity to reflect on our own sin and, and to confess that to the Lord. God, there are things that I ought to have done that I have not done. There are things that I have done that I ought not have done. And sometimes we do that in, in kind of a, a quiet and, and individualistic way, and that's okay. There's value in that. But this morning, I actually want us to do this corporately. Together, I want us to be able to confess to the Lord that, that we can't do this so that we can find his mercy and grace. So I wanna invite you to stand with me. And uh, there's some words on the screen. It's a, it's a corporate prayer of confession. And I want us to to pray these words together. You know, confession is is just speaking truth. It's speaking truth to ourselves. It's speaking truth to one another. And it's speaking truth to God. Just saying, this is what is. So I want us to confess together as we prepare to come to the table to receive these elements as a reminder of what Christ did for us on the cross. Let's confess together to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against thee in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved thee with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in thy will and walk in thy ways to the glory of thy name, amen. I want you to hear now these words that that Paul gives us to remind us of what is ours in Christ. This is from Ephesians chapter two. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. We are forgiven in Christ. We have been washed clean. We have eternal life in relationship with him. I invite you to take your seats again. We're gonna come now to the table uh, to take the bread and the cup, these elements that Jesus took, and he said, this, this is my body It was broken for you. This is my blood that was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. So let's come, having confessed to ourselves, to each other, and to the Lord. Let's come forward and receive these elements as a gift of grace from God. Lord, I pray that as we come, that, that uh, we would come with a spirit of humility and confession, but that we would also come with a spirit of joy and gratitude, knowing all that you have done for us in Christ thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for your death on our behalf. Thank you for defeating sin and death, for rising from the dead so that we can live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you in the middle, there'll be an usher who will come and dismiss you by rows, and you can come forward to these two tables. If you're on the patio or if you're in one of our wings, whenever you're ready, you can come forward to the table. Let's eat and drink together.